Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. Our scripture for today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. This is the word of God for the people of God, let us say. Thanks be to God. So Mary, Joanna, Mary are deemed as perplexed, confused. We've got Peter who is standing in amazement uh, in the tomb, um, not having seen the angels there, but knowing that there's nothing in the tomb. Um, and the rest of the disciples, they, Scripture talks about that they thought the tales of the women and of Peter or just idle fairy tales. Because who comes back from the dead? You'd think by Luke 24 that they'd have time to expect the unexpected from Jesus. I mean, he is healing women in crowds who simply touch his cloak, and he's rubbing mud on people's eyes so they can see again. He is healing people left and right. He's challenging the hypocrisy of the religious authorities. He is doing things like helping Peter walk on the unsolid foundation of water for a few steps. So you'd think maybe by Luke 24 that the disciples and Mary and Joanna and Mary would have come to expect the unexpected, but they'd also never dealt with something like death before. They'd never dealt with the impossible and the fight that is death. So when I was a kid um, growing up, I would walk down the street to my friend Walter's house and we would spend hours playing Nintendo, not like PlayStation or Xbox, but this was the 8-bit Nintendo. And we would play uh, Mario and we would play all sorts of other things, but our favorite game was Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. And I know this doesn't seem like an Easter reference necessarily to maybe talk about boxing, but we'd play this boxing game. And if you're not familiar with the sponsored character in there, Mike Tyson. He was deemed Iron Mike or Kid Dynamite because he was invincible before he became a punchline for all of his other antics. He was invincible in the ring and he would knock out with such ferocious, vicious punches that people assumed that just nobody could ever beat him. And in the video game, um, you would work yourself up through lower boxers, Glass, uh, Glass Joe, Glass Jaw Joe, and King Hippo, and and various other boxers of different skill levels um, and, and until you got to Mike Tyson at the end of this. And they designed the game to be unbeatable. Uh, Tyson was 220 pounds of solid muscle with uh, rabbit-like punches and this uppercut that if it hit you one time, you were completely out of the game and you had to go back and start all over. And you got to use this character named Little Mac. 
And little Mac uh, apparently weighed all of 107 pounds, dripping wet. And when you see him on the screen, you have this massive figure of Tyson. You've got this little figure of little Mac. And, and so we would get so frustrated. We'd play for hours. And in the back of our mind, even as we're progressing day after day and week after week in this game, in the back of our mind, I think we always knew that we were going to lose. We started the game knowing that eventually we were going to lose to this character at the end of the game, but we kept on going and we'd get so frustrated that we couldn't beat Mike Tyson in this game. And looking back now, I'm wondering, well, why would we even expect to win? Tyson is undefeated. Even as we get to Luke 24, in the disciples' minds, death is undefeated in the ring. People don't come back from brutal crucifixions and torture. Uh, people don't uh, move two-ton uh, stones away from tombs and just walk out uh, in the garden so that people can uh, see them and touch his hands. People don't do that. So you can imagine why it's perplexing and confusing for the women and the disciples to experience this risen Christ because people don't just don't just rise from the dead like that. But when they do, it's pretty amazing. One of the things the disciples, I think, realized is they'd been playing the wrong game. So one of the scriptures uh, we need to look at is, Roman, is uh, Romans 6, 23. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And it says this very common, very known phrase in Christian circles. It's the wages of sin are death. The wages of sin is death. And um, this is something the disciples would have had in the back of their mind as to why this was so confusing. Because up until this point, there was a very uh, understood uh, view of eschatology. And eschatology is this big word that means what you believe about the end times, death, judgment, afterlife, all of those things. Um, and while there was a there was a, a many different views of eschatology in Judaism, as varied as there are in Christianity these days. Um, the Pharisees had a real big part to play in shaping what the disciples would have known. And the Pharisees were of the mindset that um, in the, re the resurrection would come, or the Messiah more specifically would come, if the Jewish people and the nation of Israel had very strict adherence to the law. And there are still Christian circles that think this. If we do all the right things, then God will deem us worthy to be saved, and then the Messiah will come. And so there was a heavy emphasis on obedience to the rules and obedience to the law. Um, so, and, and so the disciples would have been um, picturing this. And, and let me do a little backup on how the law was formed. Um, scholars assume or scholars think that um, the law was initially given in the top, in the top 10, the 10 commandments uh, of given on Mount Sinai to Moses in Exodus. And, and it's very generalized. It's you know, thou shalt not covet, and you shall not kill, and you shall have no false idols, and worship any god above me. Like there's these big general categories, and apparently those didn't um, those general categories weren't easy enough to follow. So uh, what scholars assume happened was is that God gave these kind of top ten guiding principles for people to use their best stewardship and, and wisdom to to follow, and that didn't work out very well. So people like the priests and people like the rabbis that come later or the Pharisees, this class of religious elites, uh, what they would do is when a specific situation would come up, they would look to the top 10 commandments and they would say, okay, well, this is how this applies in this situation. 
And, and then they would write those down. And so that's where you get your Leviticus and your Deuteronomy, some of your Numbers, your End of Exodus. You get a lot of these rules that come out so much so there are 616 just in the Old Testament. And, and we know there are more because there's a, a book called the Mishnah, which is some wisdom writings, and the Talmud, which is a collection of rabbis arguing and debating about these different rules. So not just the 616, but there are more cultural norms around Judaism in this time of the disciples to where it is impossible to be perfect enough. Uh, it is impossible. And so you think about the more, um, if, if the law has claim over whether the Messiah comes or the law has claim over your life, the more laws there are, the more death has a claim of your life, the, the more difficult it is to get it right with as many laws are on the books. So you can see why they're so perplexed that someone might have defeated this system. I mean, if you want to talk about a heavyweight mismatch in the ring, it is us versus perfection. Us versus this idyllic state of, of holiness, of righteousness, of perfect love that we have for each other. And, and we don't see this very often. It is no wonder why they're so perplexed because in their mind, there's this very logical thinking of, well, the wages of sin is death. Eventually, we lose. Eventually, the game ends. Eventually, we're going to get to the end and we're not going to be able to defeat that opponent. But when Jesus does, it is amazing. It is beautiful. It is astounding. And it's confusing. Let me tell you the way we finally beat Mike Tyson in this video game was uh, Walter's dad worked for this, this computer company and he would travel to Japan often to interact with other business associates over in Japan. And long before it came out on the American market, uh, Mr. Tuszynski brought back this thing called a Game Genie. And for those of you who didn't grow up in the Nintendo era, either before or after, the Game Genie was a, was a little gold cartridge that you inserted onto the actual Nintendo cartridge and you inserted them both in together. And it did this binary coding workaround to where it would put little patches on the coding of the game. So uh, you could actually change the game and the way it was played with certain codes that you could use through the Game Genie. So we would put Mike Tyson's punch out in and we could enter a code that with one punch you could knock out Mike Tyson or it would uh, skip all the rest of the characters and you would just go to Mike Tyson. There was even one that you entered a code and if you beat every other character, which we could, and you got to Mike Tyson, it was an automatic TKO, technical knockout. So you automatically won the game just by, by being there. And look, I don't, I don't know how that actually worked. I have a, a loose understanding of the coding mechanics of, of the patches and, and how that all works. I don't totally understand, but I know that it made it easier. And it was this complete workaround. It was changing the game we were playing and it made it possible to win. And what the disciples see in the resurrection, what they experience in the resurrection, is that Jesus makes it possible to win. Um, some people uh, claim that this is uh, an atonement theory called the ransom atonement theory and that somehow or another, uh, we owed the law, or we owed death, and Christians would later say we owed Satan this uh, ransom for our lives, that evil and death had a claim over our lives. And, and you can see this in Leviticus 16, when they send the scapegoat out into the wilderness with all the sins of the people upon this goat, and, and there are thought to be these evil spirits out in the wilderness that they would pay 
uh, and they, they would basically ransom this goat's life or ransom Jesus's life to evil so that we could still survive. And other people call it a substitutionary atonement where uh, Jesus takes our place in kind of this honorific uh, death, that Jesus is willing to take our suffering from us uh, and honors God in that way, and therefore we are saved. Or some people take that idea a little farther in what's called penal substitutionary atonement, and that is that God's wrath actually has to be satisfied. So it's not just God stepping in and suffering for us. It is that God's wrath has to be satisfied by by bloodshed or by death. And so Jesus is the, the sacrifice to appease God's wrath. And, and there are lots of different atonement theories, but the one I see in Luke 24 and the one I generally subscribe to is these women are coming out just perplexed and bewildered. And Peter is amazed. I mean, there's got to be enough liftment of the spirit when you see this Messiah figure that you love so dearly that is not dead anymore. And even the snarky angel who's like, why are you looking for the dead amongst the living? It is this conquering of death. It's what's called Christus Victor. It's this uh, haymaker punch that Jesus comes and throws at evil and death. It's not a payment. It's not a ransom. It is Jesus fully knocking death on its face. It is Jesus fully taking evil by, by the ears and boxing it out of the ring. It is Jesus taking full claim and saying that the wages of sin are no longer death anymore. The evil will not conquer in this world. In fact, death does not have the final word. I have the final word. And we see Jesus take hold of life because this is not the first time Jesus has conquered something in life. If death is a part of life, Jesus looks in the face of death and says, you don't have a sting anymore because I'm going to pave a way for people to not have to face you anymore. That people can simply live through me and go on into eternal life, knocking death out of the way. But even before death, in the midst of the crucifixion, Jesus takes judgment and looks it in the face and stares at a thief who has deserved death through his insurrection and through his robbery of people and says, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't care what the law says. I don't care what judgment says. I don't care what evil says. I don't care what death says. What I say is that you will experience paradise today. This is the victory that we live in Jesus. This is the victory that we have through the life of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and and the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus doesn't conquer in the normal way to create more decay. Jesus doesn't march in with an army and murder those who are oppressing him to just create more death and more decay. Jesus, Jesus faces death saying, uh, Jesus faces the consequences of death and experiences death himself so that he can rise from death and say, you don't have any power over me and I don't have to play your game I don't have to stoop to your level. I can simply take power over you and I can give it to all of God's children. And so through that, we have confidence. We have this victory that the game can be won. No longer are we going to start the game with, with the back of our mind thinking, well, we're going to lose anyway. Right? And I wonder what that does for us on, on a practical level when we wake up each morning and we're not afraid of losing. We're not afraid of evil. We're not afraid of pain. We're not afraid of the bullies of the world. We're not afraid of the things that get in our heads and cloud our judgment. I wonder what that does to us if we begin to act in what 1 John 4, 18 calls perfect love. 
This is what Jesus offers to us. Jesus doesn't offer a payment. Jesus offers perfect love by saying, I love you perfectly. And perfect love casts casts out all fear. So what happens when we don't live afraid anymore? What happens when our decisions are made out of perfect love, out of Jesus paving the way that says that I don't have to worry about the wages of sin anymore. In fact, when I, may, when I mess up, Jesus is going to forgive me. And so I'm going to try my best not to mess up, but I'm going to take risk-taking actions to love as best as I can, regardless of the consequences, because those consequences have been knocked out of the way. Should I, should I suffer, Jesus will pick me back up off the mat. Should I get knocked down, Jesus will take me in the corner and revive me again. And ultimately, if death is there, as it will be for all of us, Jesus has already taken care of that. And through our belief in Christ, through our belief in God's mighty action through Christ to conquer death, we get to go past death into eternal life, into eternal goodness with God. And so imagine what we would do if we weren't afraid of dying and we weren't afraid of all of the decay that might come. Imagine what we can do if we lived in this perfect love, knowing that somebody already fought for you, somebody already conquered for you, and that the evils and the injustices in the world, they won't win, and that death won't win. Imagine, imagine how many of us would come back to life. Imagine how joyful we might feel as we get up each morning without that heavy weight upon us. Imagine the moments of sickness and trial in which they're still sad and there's still grief and there's still anguish because we love those people. But imagine what we might feel if we knew we'd see them again. I can't explain, kind of like the game genie early on, I can't totally explain the mechanics of the resurrection. I can't, no one can. There, there are so many different theories of atonement on the cross. There are so many different theories of how to explain the resurrection. But what we do know is that we have a 2,000 plus year record of biblical witness and that there is this profound change in a, in a large group of people who saw and touched and heard and were around Jesus after he lived again. And that biblical witness has been maintained as in, in, with integrity from the oral tradition to the written down tradition to what we've inherited today. We know something fantastic and, and perplexing happened. And because of that, because of that witness, we get to come back to life again. Come back to life in Jesus Christ. And so when we start each day, when we start the game, we know we're going to win. We know God has already won. And we're challenged and we're invited to this life of victory. Victory through love and victory through grace. Victory through forgiveness and victory through trusting that God has paved the way. And that we don't have to live with our mistakes anymore. We don't have to be afraid of making mistakes and risk-taking love. We don't have to live in fear of the evil in this world. We have the power to conquer that evil. Because we've been called friends of Jesus. We've been called children of God. And God has paved the way in resurrection for us to come back to life again. So I want to make this invitation to you today, wherever you may be, um, just to say this prayer with me. Um, this, pray, this prayer before we go to the communion table to receive the grace of God, this very real presence of God we believe to be in the communion elements. And if you have your, your bread and your juice ready or your solid, your liquid, whatever it may be this Easter Sunday, 
um, wherever or whenever you're, you're worshiping with us. Um, I want to invite you to say this prayer with me to ask God into our lives, maybe for the first time or maybe again. Let's pray. God, we open our hands to confidently receive your spirit, knowing that whatever evil we might be facing, no matter what pressure we may be feeling, no matter what uh, prejudice is around us, that you are moving in our lives to conquer that and that you have already told us that you have the last word. And so those things will not win. And we can confidently go into the ring and we can fight the good fight and run the good race. And so, God, open our hearts again. May we open our hands, may we open our hearts and just say this with me. Jesus, come in. Jesus, come into my heart and guide me and mold me and shape me and use me so that I may see your victory over my sin and the sin in this world because you have already won. Would you say with me now? Amen. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at CreekwoodUMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.